Okay, good evening, everybody. Great to have you tonight. If you are like me, you're starting to feel a little weary in the semester, a little tired, a little worn down. Midterms are over, and you thought you'd get a huge break, and then they didn't give you one. I hear you. I'm with you. Thanks for being here tonight, being a part of this community. We've been talking this semester uh, in a series through the Gospel of John, which we're calling Jesus Gives Us Life, because we want life. And when we think about our time in college, and of course when we think about our time after college, we want a life of meaning, of purpose, of fullness, of joy, of peace. Things that we are made for. And for most of us, it feels fleeting. It feels like it's always slipping through our fingers. If we can get to the next thing, past the next hurdle, past the next deadline, we'll finally get it. And it just keeps going farther and farther away from us. And the claim of the Bible and of the Lord Jesus is that you actually, in the here and now of your real, busy, stressful, anxious life, can have those things, can have a life of meaning and purpose and joy. And it's offered to you in Christ who came to give you life. He says in John 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And so we've been talking through what that means all semester. We've we've talked about how Jesus gives us a life of joy, a life of hope, a life of forgiveness, a life of worship, a life of power. And tonight we'll see that Jesus gives us a life of love. We're, we're in John 13. We were in John 13 also last week. If you were here, we talked about this, the story where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. How in the midst of his power as the Holy One, the true King of the universe, the Son of God, he leaves his high position and makes himself low so he might draw near to us. And in between that passage and where we're going to look in verses 31 is a kind of downer part of the story, a sad part of the story, where Jesus basically calls out Judas. He says, you're the one who's going to betray me. And Judas doesn't have any defense, and he gets up and he leaves. So the, the activities, the events that are going to lead to Jesus' death on the cross are in motion at this point. And so Jesus is at this upper room having this time at the table with his friends. This is the last night of his life. On earth. So at the beginning, you'll hear when he went out. That's not Jesus. That's when Judas, who was going to betray him, went out. So if you have your Bible or your handout, it's printed for you, or your phone, it'd be great for you to have John 13 in front of you. We're going to read verses 31 to 35. When he, again, that's Judas, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. I want to pause there for a second because that's a little confusing. When you hear the word glory as it, as it is described to Jesus, here's what, here's what he's saying to you. Here's what he, Jesus is saying to his disciples. It is time for me to leave. We'll see him in a, in a second. He'll say in the next verse, I, I'm going somewhere and you won't be able to follow me. He said, I'm about to go and the reason I'm going it's because it's time for me to come into my glory. You remember at the very beginning of the semester, we talked about the wedding at Cana in Galilee, and Jesus said, my time has not yet come. Now his time has come for him to reveal the fullness of his glory. And what glory is, is the manifestation. It's the expression of the magnitude and greatness of who God is. That's what glory is. What Jesus is saying is, I'm about to do something that is what God's character is like, what God himself is like. I'm about to commit this extraordinary act of sacrifice and love 
And that's going to glorify God because that's exactly what he is like in his own heart. And Jesus is saying, and I'm going to receive glory. He's talking about how he'll be raised up from the dead, how God will give him new life, conquering death through the body of Jesus. So that's what's going on there. Let's, let's jump back in in verse 33. Here's what Jesus continues to say. He says, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is God's word. It's absolutely true. He gives it to us because he loves us. Let's pray and then we'll get started. Jesus, thank you for the gift of this night. Thank you for your great love for us that never gives up and never runs out on us. That seems uh, so great that it's reckless. I pray that you would help us to feel and experience that love even tonight, that your spirit would be at work through your word so we might love you back and love each other. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In season five of The Office, things are not looking too great for Dunder Mifflin. <laughs> All across the company in various branches, uh, business is slowing down. Clients are leaving for the big name chains like Staples, the name that shall not be mentioned. Uh, but for some reason, the Scranton branch is doing great. And so Michael gets invited by David Wallace, the CFO, up to New York City for a little powwow, a little interview. And David Wallace basically says to him, what are you doing right all the other branches are struggling, but Scran is still putting up good numbers. How are you doing it? And Michael assumes that he has been called up to New York because he is in trouble. And so he has no idea what's going on. He sort of tilts his head to the side and smiles and looks at the camera, feeling pretty proud of himself. And then he starts to explain, well, here's what I'm doing, David. Here's the secret. Here's the method. Here's the style. Here's my plan. Okay. Of course, Michael doesn't have a philosophy of life. He doesn't have a plane. He doesn't have a style or a method. He just kind of is his own goofy self and things happen. But here's what, here's what Michael says. He says, David, here it is. My philosophy is basically this. And this is something I live by. And I always have. And I always will. Don't ever, for any reason, do anything... To anyone, for any reason ever, no matter what, no matter who, no matter who you're with, or where you're going, or where you've been, ever, for any reason, whatsoever. And then it pans away to an interview of Michael. And he says, sometimes I start a sentence and I don't even know where it's going. And I just hope I figure it out along the way. So it's like, ha-ha, funny, but what Michael is saying about this conversation is actually the same about his life, and it's actually the same for our lives as well, right? Most of the time, we don't really know what we're doing. We're just kind of going along, and we're hoping that we figure it out along the way. So that if someone were to ask you, like, what's the meaning of life? What's your purpose here? Why do you do everything the way that you do it? Usually we wouldn't really know what to say. Usually we're just kind of like doing our thing. We're kind of just going with the flow and we're hoping that at some point it all makes sense. At some point we'll figure it out. At some point we'll bring 
it all together. And, and the problem with this is that if you don't have a philosophy of life that's guiding you, if you don't have a worldview, if you don't have a method, if you don't have a purpose, then the world will impose one on you. The people around you, the culture around you, the environment around you will impose one on you. This is, this is really powerful and compelling for you at a place like Washington and Lee, which does have a worldview, which does have a life philosophy, which does have a reason for doing everything that we do, and it gets imposed on you. The, the Washington and Lee life philosophy is all about achievement and belonging. It's all about achievement and belonging. That's what motivates every single thing that everyone does in this place. You're supposed to, you're expected to achieve in school and do well. You didn't come here not to do well. You're expected, you're supposed to achieve and succeed in your interviews so that you can go and achieve and succeed in your internship. So you can go and achieve and succeed in a job. So you can achieve success and money and prestige and acclaim down the road. You're supposed to achieve in getting into law school and med school and taking the LSAT. You're, you're supposed to achieve and succeed in all these things, right? And, of course, this carries over into our social life where the big thing here is belonging. This is a place that's all about the question, where do you belong? What's your group? What's your niche? What team are you on? What organization are you a part of? What fraternity or sorority are you in? What relationship do you have with that guy or that girl? And these questions, what are you achieving and where do you belong or what drive most of the things that you and the people around you are doing every day at Washington Lee. This is why you feel so anxious because you have all B pluses. That's really good, but it's not good enough, is it? This is why you've applied for 63 different summer internships already this fall. Because you have got to get one and it has got to be a good one and it's got to look good. This is why you have a goal for what job you want after college, and you don't know why you want it. You just know you're supposed to go get it. This is why you, you first years are so weird and anxious around everyone right now. Because everyone's asking the question, where are we all going to belong once the dust settles from Rush? Like, what group are you going to be in, and who's going to be in that group? Who's going to be your people? That's why you feel like you never can really be yourself around upperclassmen. That's why you feel like you have friends, but if you don't end up going the same place as them, you won't be friends then, so you've got to hold back a little bit, a little turmoil, a little tension all the time. This is why you give your body away to someone on a Friday night that you don't really know, because in that moment you'll have some experience that makes you feel like you belong. This is what drives everything that we do here. And the claim of the Bible and the claim of this passage tonight is that there's a better way. There is actually a life philosophy, a purpose, a reason for doing everything that you do that is good, that is true, that is beautiful, and that will lead you to peace instead of anxiety, to fullness instead of emptiness, to to embrace instead of anxiety. And that thing, that worldview, that life philosophy is summed up in one word. Love. So if you are following Christ, the claim of the Bible is that everything is all about love. It it may seem a little simple, a little obvious, a little bit like a no-brainer, like, yeah, love, I, I, I get it. We're supposed to be about love, right? 
uh, I think Jesus anticipates this answer. That's why he says in verse 33, he calls them little children. He calls his disciples little children. It's hard to tell. Is that endearing? Is that a little condescending? Is that a little demeaning? Like, do you want to be called little child right now as an 18, 19, 20, 21, 22-year-old? Like, <laughs> do you want to be a little child anymore? Or do you want to be a man? Do you want to be a woman? Where, as we start this message, we're kind of forced to face the question, uh, like, can you accept that you're needy? Can you accept that you're still dependent? Can you accept that you can't really handle it all on your own? And then secondly, the, the question is this, especially in regards to something like love, which is a word we probably use all the time, which is something we think we understand. Can you accept that you have a lot to learn, that I have a lot to learn still about what it means to live a life of love? We're going to talk about what it means that Jesus gives us a life of love, and I want to point out two aspects of this tonight. First, the priority of love, and secondly, the power of love. The priority of love and the power of love. So first, the priority of love. Uh, love, again, it's sort of a no-brainer. Like, like Christians know, if, if you're a Christian, I'm sure not everyone here tonight is a Christian, but if you are, you know like we're supposed to be loving, right? We're supposed to be kind and courteous and polite. We're supposed to hold the door open for people. Maybe if we have some free time, we volunteer. Maybe you went on a service trip in high school. Like, sure. Like, we get it, right? It's all about love. But the Christian call to love is something much more than that. It's ultimately urgent. There's a radical priority given to love. And here's how we know. Here's what Jesus says when he tells us to love. He says, just as I have loved you, so also you are to love one another. Just as I have loved you. In the same way that I, Jesus, the Son of God, the eternal Lamb who's going to take away the sins of the world, just like I have done it, that's how you're supposed to think about love. So how does Jesus love? Well, we read in the Bible that it's actually through Jesus that we were even made and that he made us to be his own. The Old Testament says it like this in Deuteronomy, a treasured possession to the Lord, to belong to him as his child, little children. Jesus came into the world and he spoke hard truth to people. He cared about them enough. He loved them enough to speak hard truth to them. He cared about them enough to touch them in dirty, shameful places and bring healing. He was willing to lay down everything, to pay everything he had, to literally die in order to love us. Jesus' love doesn't take any days off, it's never too busy. It never runs out of energy. It never fails. It goes on and on and on and on. It's the most powerful force in the universe is God's love for you. Love is the center of every decision Jesus makes. It's the center of every interaction he has with another person. It's at the center of every activity he partakes in. Love is a priority of Jesus' life. It's the very center of his life. And he calls us to have that same priority of love, just like I've done it, just like I've made that the center of my whole being, even though it cost me everything. That's what you're supposed to do. So what I want to do tonight is I want to offer you a, a couple of, there, there's a ton of things we could apply this to, but just a couple of ways of thinking about what it might look like if we lived with love as our priority, with love as actually the center and most important thing in our life, okay? Um, so here's the first thing I want to suggest. Okay. 
in, in what sense does this affect your thoughts about your future career, about what you want to do with your life? When you think about that, what is your priority? You are heavily tempted because of this culture of achievement that when you think about your career to prioritize things like uh, words like success, you want to do well, you want to feel like you are important and you want the respect of people around you, and you want to be compensated in a way that reflects that prestige and reflects that importance and make a certain amount of money so you can have a certain kind of lifestyle. As you picture that, what is your priority? And do you mention the word love? What would it look like to think about different jobs, different career paths in terms of how could I use that position, that career, that job as an avenue to extend God's love to people, to bring truth into the world, to bring beauty into the world, to bring saving those who are weak into the world, to bring love. And when you're comparing two jobs, why isn't that the factor that you're using to weigh the two of them? That's, that's the first thing I want to suggest to you. Um, the second one is this. How do you think about the friendships that you have? What is your priority when you think about friends? Is your priority that you want to have fun with them? Is your priority that you want to have certain kinds of experiences that you do together and common interests? Is your priority that you want that security of feeling like you belong to some people, to a group? One of the things that will happen if that's your priority is that you won't care enough about the other person to say hard things to them when they need to hear it, which is one of the things that Jesus in his love relentlessly does. Do you love your friends enough to talk to them when they're dating someone they shouldn't? When they're making a decision that they shouldn't, when they're going down a path that you know is going to hurt them and it might hurt other people. Do you care about them enough? Do you have the priority of love in your life that you're actually going to bring those things up to your friends? It's very, very hard to do. It takes love. The last thing I'll say is about dating. Some of you guys are in dating relationships. Some of you guys are pursuing dating relationships. Some of you guys just really want to be in dating relationships. And so my question is, what is your priority as you think about romantic relationships in your life? What is the most important thing to you about those relationships? Is it some kind of physical intimacy and gratification? Is it the, the comfort that comes from having someone who's like your person, like you have somebody? And it look, you look around, it seems like everybody has somebody and you wish you had somebody, you want that too, that companionship. Do you even know why you're pursuing that kind of relationship with somebody? And what would it look like to have those relationships be centered on what the Bible says love is? Which is a heartfelt, lifelong commitment to put the needs and the hopes and the agendas and the desires of someone else before yourself. That's what love is. And if that's not what you're pursuing in a relationship, it's probably not going anywhere good. And if that's not what you're pursuing in a relationship, you better not say I love you to the person because you are lying to them when you say it. You are saying it feels really good to be in this relationship with you right now in this particular moment. So there's some challenges here about the priority of love. And so the question becomes, how do we do it? How do we have the strength, the self-control, the energy to have this kind of priority of love. 
And the reminder to us is that Christianity is primarily a religion of uh, receiving, not of doing. Being a Christian is not about doing stuff. It's about receiving from God who loves you. And so if you're wondering how to grow in these ways, if you want to grow in these ways, what you actually have to do is not change what you do, is you have to let yourself receive God's love for you. And the receiving that we do from God is an active receiving, if that makes sense. He's the one giving, but we have to reach out our hands and accept that invitation to his love. That's why you come to things like RUF. You're trying to have an, an opportunity to receive. That's why you go to church on Sunday. That's why you read your Bible. That's why you pray. That's why you listen to praise music when you go on a run as active receiving. And so I want to encourage you to, to consider how you might make active receiving of God's love for you more central in your life. It's the only way you'll grow to make love a priority. Those are the things that will form you to be a better lover, to be conformed to God's love, to engage in the practices of love for the people around you. Jesus gives us the priority of love. Secondly, Jesus gives us the power of love, the power of love. This is not a reference to Huey Lewis in the news. So old. The power of love. Here, here's what I mean. One of the things that makes Christians, thank you, one of the things that makes Christians really anxious, I'm going to say a word, see if it makes you anxious. Evangelism. Who got anxious? Okay, a couple of you. A couple of honest people. <laughs> makes us anxious because we, uh, we believe that we are supposed to uh, not just believe in Jesus, not just follow him in our own lives, not just receive his love in our own hearts, but actually in the way that we live and what we say with our mouths, talk about it to other people who don't believe us. Which feels very scary, especially in this day and age when it's all about achievement and belonging and you actually have a chance to compromise your ability to achieve and to belong if you're open about Jesus, if you're talking about Jesus, if you're following Jesus, right? But a life where love is your priority is actually the most powerful way that you can share what God is like, what being a person is really like, how much Jesus really loves you, what we think is like happening in this world and in the future, the best way to share that, the most powerful way to share that is actually to love each other. It's like really freeing in one sense. You don't have to go on a street corner if you don't want to. But it's actually much harder. You might want to go on a street corner because it's actually really hard to live this kind of love in the community. Jesus' life, we talked about him glorifying the Father. His life looks like God's love by what he does. And that's the call to us. The prayer is that people might look at a community like RUF, might look at a friendship between two Christians, might look at a church and be amazed at what God is like because of how they see people treating each other. One of the things that we have to be wary of in this sort of conversation and one of the things we have to own is that historically... Often, Christians have not done a good job of this. Often, the things that mark Christians' relationship with each other are things like pride and vanity and competition and hunger for power and influence and TV ratings, domination of those who are weak. That we have a sad history of this. And so, we want to approach this sort of thing with some humility and with some honesty, but with a striving to say, we actually have an opportunity of the people in a room like this, with friends like you actually have,
to treat each other in such a way that is so powerful it could change somebody else's life just because they see it. And so again, I want to offer just a couple of examples of what this might look like, okay? The first thing I'll mention is forgiveness. We had a whole sermon on forgiveness a few weeks ago. How do, how do you treat your friends? How, does, how do Christians treat each other when someone has made a mistake? When someone's wronged you, when someone's offended you, when someone's hurt you, what do you do? Do you make them pay? Do you make them earn their way back into your affection and into your life? Or are you radically committed to relentlessly extending forgiveness because that's exactly what Jesus does for you in your own mistakes? The way that we treat each other when we mess up has power to change other people's lives because God's forgiveness is so radical. The second thing is this. How do you treat people within the Christian community who are different from you? who have different politics than you, who have different skin color than you, who are from different parts of the country or parts of the world than you, who believe things that are a little different about how you even do Christianity, who are in a rival fraternity or sorority, who are in a rival church, who are in a rival campus ministry on your campus. How are RUF people going to treat InterVarsity people and Young Life people, and Catholic campus ministry people. Are we going to feel a little insecure? Are we going to want to make sure that we feel like what we're doing is the best way and the right way, and we're a little better, and we're a little stronger, and we're a little more correct, and we're a little more right? Are we going to keep our distance from people who they may believe with us, but they're on the other side of the street in that other house over there, and we do not talk to them? Are we willing to celebrate the goodness of the things that are going on that we're not even a part of? Are we going to be committed to speaking really well of other churches or other ministries or other people who are different than us, even when we don't really know how to handle it, even when we're not really sure what's going on, even when we're not really sure who is right and who's wrong and some of the differences that we have? If we can learn how to be kind and generous and charitable to people who think differently than us, it has the power to change people's lives because our culture does not know how to do it. And the church of Christ has got to be where that starts. The third thing is this. Um, has to do with our patience with each other. This one's really challenging to me in, in lots of ways because there are some people in your life who you just run out of patience with to love them. Maybe just because they're a little annoying to you. Maybe their personality just rubs you the wrong way. Maybe they talk about themselves all the time and they never ask you any questions about your life. Maybe they keep struggling with things that you wish they would stop. They keep stumbling in ways that you wish they wouldn't stumble. And you say, I just don't want to hold back their hair while they throw up on the back of some porch again this weekend. I just don't want to do it. I just don't have the patience. I need them, if we're going to be in a relationship, to fix something, to get it together, to change. Or are we going to try to extend the kind of patience that Jesus extends to us? Where he forgives us seven times and then 70 times and then 7,000 times. And those things that we keep struggling with and we bring to the Lord and we feel like an idiot 
because we prayed this same prayer two days ago and here we are again messing up again and he embraces us with love every single time could we learn how to how to treat each other with that kind of patience and that kind of love so if you want to know how to share Jesus with your friends if you want to know how to be a light in a dark place if you want to know how to do evangelism we have to grow in love and when we do it will have power We'll have power. Jesus gives us this life of love, and I want to end tonight by remembering uh, just that, that this life of love is given. It's not something that we do. It's something that's given to us, that we receive as a gift. My, my third daughter, Caroline, who's two, uh, will tell the people in our family that she loves us. But she never says, I love you, Mom. I love you, Dad. I love you, Ellicate. She says, Dad, I love you too. Mom, I love you too. Ellicate, I love you too. Even when we haven't just said, I love you. So when I'm leaving the room, she says, Dad, I love you too. And when, we, when me and Ellicate and Ruthie are walking up the steps in the morning and Maggie opens the window from her in the craft room so she can scream at us, bye, Dad, bye, guys, I love you too. And at first, I, I was a little frustrated, and I wanted to correct her. Like, that, sweetie, that's not how you say it. You can just say, I love you. But then if someone else says it first, then you can say, I love you too. I love you too is a response. But what I started to realize is that for her whole life, she's been told, I love you. She's heard it from me. She's heard it from Maggie. She's heard it from her sisters and her grandparents and our friends. She's heard, I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. Again and again and again. She's soaked in that. She's steeped in that. So that her default mode is actually not one of initiation. It's one of response. It's one of reaction. It's I love you too. Because she knows, she knows right now at least that she is loved. Guys, that's the Christian life. God says to us, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you all the time, every day of our lives. So that anything we say to God and any kindness we can muster up in our hearts towards someone else is not something that we are initiating. It's not something that we are bringing. It's all reaction. It's all response. It's all I love you too. I love you too because you've loved me so much. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you too. Thank you for echoing this chorus of your love for us. Thank you for telling it to us through your words. Thank you for showing it to us in your sacrifice and death in order to save us. Lord, please help us to grow in love and help it to be not something that we try to do, but something that we try to receive and respond to. Thank you that your love is so great Then, when we put it at the center of our lives, it has power to change the world around us. We pray that it would happen on this campus. In Jesus' name, amen.